I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 2. I'm going to bring some water up here with me today. I uh, cheered a little bit too loudly on Friday night at the local football game outside, and it was a great game to see. Uh, We lost a close one, but it was really a, a lot of fun to be there and to see the high school team play so well. John chapter 2. I'd like to read this morning for us verses 1 to 11. I was intending to speak uh, on the whole passage through verse 22, but I don't think we're going to get to the second half today. So uh, I'm just going to focus on John chapter 2 verses 1 to 11, and I'd like to read that for us. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from twenty to thirty gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Shall we pray? Father, would you speak to us today? by Your Word, by Your Holy Spirit, and show us what it is that You intended us to learn from this first of Jesus' miraculous signs. And help us, like the disciples, to put our trust in Him more fully. Amen. Weddings are special occasions. And one of the privileges that I have as a pastor is to be there to tie the knot, so to speak. I enjoy meeting with couples when they come in for the premarital counseling. I love to hear their story of how they met. And, you know, young couples come in and they're just excited and you can see how much they're in love with each other. And they love to tell the story over and over again of kind of what God's been doing in their life and how they came together. And my purpose in meeting with them in those premarital counseling sessions is to help them get off to the best start that they can. I want to help them to build a Christ-centered marriage and family and talk about the importance of that spiritual dimension in a relationship. I also know that for couples and for their families that pulling together a wedding is probably the biggest thing that they will ever do as a family. I mean, graduation parties are a pretty big deal too, but, you know, an open house is a lot less informal, or it's a lot less formal, and it's uh, kind of more fun as people come and go. But a wedding, you know, that bride wants everything to be just perfect on that day. The flowers, the dresses, the tuxedos, whatever it is that they have planned, uh, they want that to just go uh, perfect on that day. So when you read a story like this, you can understand kind of the, 
the uh, little glitch that's come up here with there being no more wine for the wedding and people beginning to wonder about that and what's going to happen here. There's a problem at their wedding. Weddings have always been special occasions. And we are going to see that here in this text today. A Jewish wedding would typically be about a week long. Can you imagine that? I mean, we do, you know, one day and, you know, have this ceremony and then the reception afterwards. And for many of us who have such busy lives, you know, that seems sometimes like a long time. But a Jewish wedding would typically be a week long. It would take place late in the evening following a feast. And after the ceremony, the bride and the groom would be taken to their home in a torchlight parade through the streets of the village or town where they were. And there would be a canopy that would be over their heads and carried by other friends or guests. And they'd kind of take the longest route that they could through that little village so that everybody could join in the celebration. And the couple would be brought to their home. Even the day of the week was specified. The normal day for a bride who was a virgin to be married was Wednesday. Widows who were being remarried would be married on a Thursday. Instead of a honeymoon, they had an open house for a week. And this newly married couple were treated like a king and a queen for that week as friends or family would wait on them or provide what they need. It's probably like what we do with a honeymoon, only we tend to save up the money and send the couple off so that they can be served by, you know, a a hotel or those who are working at a restaurant who take care of their needs during that week and they don't have to worry about anything. Well, in those days, when there weren't those kind of ample facilities, the family or friends would treat this couple like they were royalty in that first week of their marriage. It was a joyous celebration. And it is here at a wedding in Cana that Jesus will perform His first miracle. Now, John prefers to call these miracles signs. We see that in verse 11. He says this is the first of His miraculous signs that Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. And the reason John prefers the word sign is that miracles point to a greater spiritual truth. Jesus never did a miracle just for the sake of showing that He could do a miracle. His miracles were always done for a reason. They were a sign. They pointed to something greater. So that's what we need to look for and what we need to ask. Okay, why did this this miracle come first? What is it that John, as the author of this Gospel, is trying to say to us? What was this miracle all about? And what is happening here is that Jesus is defining His mission as the Messiah. When Jesus came into the world, there were a lot of expectations among the Jews about what the Messiah would be like. You know, they thought He'd be a great king, a political leader, a religious leader. He would bring Israel to the top again as a nation and defeat all of her enemies. And they had all these kind of kingdom expectations about what the Messiah would be like. But that wasn't Jesus' mission when He came the first time. Jesus Himself preferred the title Son of Man. We see that at the end of chapter 1, verse 51. When He was talking there about you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Son of Man was the favorite title that He had for Himself in part because it had less baggage associated with it. 
It was not something that they had clearly understood or defined. And he identified with us in our humanity. And what we're going to see in this miracle, this first sign, is that Jesus' ministry is one of spiritual transformation. This miracle, the changing of the water into wine, is about spiritual transformation. And this miracle is about the transforming power of Christ. John begins by telling us, On the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. According to John's Gospel, this is now the seventh day of the opening week of Jesus' ministry. And John is very subtle in some ways as an author. And he puts in these little kind of hints or clues that you have to look closely for and trace uh, through. And then you begin to see what he's doing here. John began his Gospel with an intentional connection to Genesis 1 when he said, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." And those words in the beginning for any uh, Jewish reader would immediately take you back to the opening of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As you trace this along, you'll see that John then follows up that intentional connection to Genesis 1 with a seven-day chronology and it ends with a wedding. Just like the original creation also ended with a wedding of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. What's going on here? What's this about? As you trace it, the first day, if the wedding indeed took place on a Wednesday, the first day of this week would have been a Thursday, when John the Baptist is confronted by the delegation that's come from Jerusalem to find out by what authority he is doing these things. On the second day, John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. On the third day, Andrew and John come to Jesus, and it is the Sabbath day which explains their inactivity on that day. On the fourth day, Andrew finds his brother Peter and brings him to Jesus. On the fifth day, which would now be a Monday, Jesus intends to leave for Galilee. He is headed toward this wedding, and he calls Philip to follow him, and Philip finds Nathanael and brings him to Jesus. The sixth day would be a day of travel, and on the seventh day, or here it would be on the third day after leaving Bethany, they arrive in Cana for the wedding. What is this all about? Jesus' ministry is a new beginning. It's about a new creation that is taking place here. There's a change. The old is passing away, and new things are coming. Cana was just a few miles from Nazareth, north and west of the Sea of Galilee. The wedding probably was for a relative or at least a close personal friend. And we get a hint at that because of Mary's concern about what's going on here. This may have been a relative of hers that was uh, you know, having a son or a daughter getting married, and so she's very concerned about what is happening here. And Mary came to Jesus with this urgent statement they have no more wine. It's run out. They were maybe a poor family that could only afford so much. We don't know the circumstances, but it was a problem at this wedding. You see, wine is a symbol of joy in the Scriptures. 
We see that in the Psalms and in other places. Wine is a symbol of joy. And the rabbis had a saying that without wine, there is no joy. And so here was this problem. How could you have a celebration without wine? And it wasn't just a matter of social embarrassment. There is actually some evidence from that time period that you could be sued for not fulfilling your social obligation. I mean, it was just expected. It was a part of what was done. And so here you could actually be sued. There might be some financial cost here if you didn't fulfill your obligations in the community. I joked with Gail about this, so we would have been in trouble because we didn't have wine at our wedding. (laughs) And maybe some of you were in that situation too. Now, the wine that they did drink at that time was often diluted with water. Wine is wine. But it was often diluted with water to between one-third and one-tenth of its original strength. Undiluted wine was considered strong drink. And what we see in this passage, because of the response of the head waiter or the master of the wedding here, is that normally people would serve that good wine first and then dilute it as it went along after people had had maybe a little bit too much to drink. So Mary comes to Jesus. Why does she come to Jesus? What did she expect him to do? It is probably an indication now that Joseph has passed away. And Mary would lean more and more upon Jesus as her firstborn son. And Jesus would care for his mother. We see that love and concern throughout this gospel. But as a mother, she probably also knew and recognized in Jesus that something was changing, that now was the time for him to begin his ministry. She knew the prophecies that were given. She knew the words of the angel who spoke to her and told her about what Jesus was going to do. She believed that this was God's Son and that His time had now come to reveal Himself to the world as the Messiah. But what did she expect Jesus to do exactly in this situation? I mean, it's not like Jesus had done this at home. You know, when Mary ran out of some flour or some oil, it wasn't like she asked Jesus to snap His finger and provide some more flour or oil. No, this was His first miracle. And stories that you may hear today like second century stories of Jesus as a toddler turning clay pigeons into living pigeons, are false. They come from what are called the Gnostic Gospels. And they were never recognized by the church as authoritative. You'll see books out today claiming to be the lost Gospels as though they should be on a par with the four Gospels in the Scripture. They are not. They are false Gospels written well after the time of Jesus and were never accepted by the church. This is the first miracle that Jesus performed. So what did Mary expect Jesus to do? Well, we aren't sure. She just expected that somehow He would take responsibility and know the right thing to do here. But Jesus replied to her and said, Mary, why, why do you involve me? Dear woman, why do you involve me in this? For my time has not yet come. For Jesus, His time 
The hour for revealing His identity to the world would be at the cross in His death and resurrection. You're going to see that in John as we move along in this Gospel. He will not talk about the hour coming for Him until He is ready to go to the cross. His death and resurrection would be the ultimate proof that He was indeed God's Son, the Messiah. But also we see here that He would do nothing apart from His Father's will. Mary, as His mother, did not have an inside track here on asking Jesus to do these things. And neither did His brothers. Later in John's Gospel, they will say to Him, well, if you really are the Messiah, why don't you go up to the feast and show yourself to the world? And He'll say, my time has not yet come. And yet later, He will go to that feast and He will do it quietly. He did everything in response to the Father's will in His life. He was operating on God's timetable, not Mary's or not His brother's, and certainly not the world's. And Mary showed her trust in Jesus by saying to the servants, Do whatever He asks you. There were six stone water jars that were there at this wedding, and they, were, they each held somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons of water. They were used for ceremonial washing. When the guests came to the wedding, before they would eat, the servants would take the water and they would pour it over their hands as a way for them to wash their hands before they ate. A large number of guests required a lot of water, so somewhere between 120 to 180 gallons of water was here contained in those six stone jars. And Jesus asked the servants to fill the jars with water, and they did that. They filled them, in fact, to the brim, as full as they could. Jewish believers who look at this text will say that six is a number of incompleteness. The old system was incomplete. It was inadequate. And this time of ceremonial washing, the old covenant is passing away a new covenant is going to begin. And Jesus, after they had filled the jars with water, told them to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. He would be like the master of ceremonies or the head waiter here. And he took that and he tasted it, not knowing where it had come from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and he said to him that everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. The best for last. Jesus had done a miracle. He had turned the water into wine. What's interesting here in John's comments is that the servants saw it but they made no spiritual connection. They knew where it had come from, but they didn't connect the dots spiritually. The disciples, John tells us in verse 11, saw the sign and they believed. They saw something of Jesus' glory revealed in this miracle and the disciples put their faith in Him. Why the difference? It's because it's a work of the Spirit of God in our hearts to enable us to see His glory in our world. It happened then. It happens every day. 
You know, today when you got up, if you looked at the sunrise this morning, for those of us who know God and have placed our trust in Him, the beauty of a sunrise can be just another evidence of God's handiwork and you see something of His glory in it. In the encounters we have with people, and the answers to prayer that we see, the things that are not just coincidences, but show God's hand, we praise God for the way that He has made us or the way that He is at work in our world. And every day as we go through our life, we see something of the glory of God revealed. But the unbeliever doesn't. All he sees is something happened by chance. Or he looks at the way a person is made and he just sees a collection of chemicals. Amino acids, molecules, somehow came together mysteriously. Only those who know Christ have the eyes to see. And the disciples, very early on, saw in this miracle the glory of God and the glory of Jesus, and they put their trust in Him. So what does this have to do with the Messiah? Well, the Jews believed that wine would flow freely in the Messianic age. In Amos chapter 9, verse 13, Amos wrote, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. In other words, there's going to be such a continual harvest that the one that goes out to sow the seed, the reaper, is going to be there while the plowman's just finishing up. And the planter is going to be there when the person is still treading the grapes and enjoying the fruit of the previous crop. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. And they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. And they will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make their gardens and eat their fruit. And I will plant Israel in their own land. And never again will they be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. The Jews believed that that age was coming when the Messiah would reign and they would live in their land and the bounty of that age would be such that the wine would flow freely. Now remember again, wine is a symbol of joy. A sign that their joy would never end. And what this text is saying is that Jesus is the bridegroom who gives the wine of joy in abundance and it will never run out. Here at the beginning of His ministry, He's at a wedding. What happens in heaven when we join Him there and He brings the redeemed home to Himself? We're going to join in another wedding banquet, aren't we? The marriage supper of the Lamb. And in that day, the joy of heaven, our joy will be complete. And it will never run out. And the sorrows and the griefs and the trials of this life and this world are all going to pass away. They won't be a memory even anymore. But instead, we will enjoy that wedding celebration when the Lamb, our Bridegroom, is joined to His Bride, the Church. When I look at a text like this, there's another thing that I notice. It is intriguing to me in the Scriptures how Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. And often, we find Jesus at parties. 
whether it was here at a wedding in Cana or whether it's later where he is eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors or at a party that Zacchaeus throws in his home or at a banquet that one of the Pharisees is having. And he is at these parties. Jesus was not a party pooper. There are sinners and tax collectors that he enjoyed being around and they enjoy being around him. Now, how did he do that? I mean, it was the Pharisees, it was the religious people who condemned him for doing that. What was there about Jesus that sinners liked him? Clearly, he could not have been as condemning as the Pharisees, or they would not have wanted him there, would they? You know, when I think about Jesus and his ministry, Jesus had that perfect balance of grace and truth that we strive for. In our mission statement, we state this, that we believe that God has placed us in the Chisago Lakes area to be a loving, biblical, and relevant witness to the grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. God wants us to be a people that are gracious who love one another, who love the people that we come into contact with every day. We're also to be a people, though, who speak the truth in love, who hold up Jesus Christ as the only way to the Father. There's one way to know Him, and it's through Jesus, and we don't compromise on that. And we live our lives as a witness in a loving way, in a biblical way, and in a relevant way. And we speak to the needs of our world, our community, our generation, but we do that in truth and with love. Sometimes we might tip one way or the other. For me personally, if I'm going to tip one side or the other, I want to tip and I want to err on the side of grace. Because I know my own sin too. And I need His grace in my life. And so I want to live that out as close to the mark as I can. I believe that's what God's called us to do. To be that kind of person who is a winsome witness for Jesus Christ at our place of work or where we live in our neighborhood. I want to give you an illustration of a man who has done that in a professional sport. This week, uh, the FCA magazine came out sharing the victory, and there was a story in there about a remarkable thing happening among the Detroit Lions professional football team. Here's a picture of the team kneeling in prayer. The Detroit Lions for years have been some of the doormats in the football league, if you want to put it that way. And they had a lot of talented players, but it was always about me, not we. It was about my stats, my looking good, not about playing together as a team. And last year they brought in a player who began to change that around. His name is John Kitna. He's the quarterback of the Lions, and he's a bold and outspoken Christian. But he does that in a way that has been well-received by the players that he has come in contact with. His reputation followed him from Cincinnati to Detroit. His new teammates knew about his faith and were aware of the famous cross-embroidered hats that he would wear. They'd also heard about his devotion to his teammates, though, and how his locker room presence facilitated unity. A year ago even, wide receiver Chad Johnson, who played for the Bengals, 
admitted that it was Kitna who was responsible for saving his career in a post-game heart-to-heart talk in 2004. John Kitna cared about his players. He cared about them both spiritually as well as playing well as a team. One of the first things he said to one of his new teammates in Detroit, to one of the players, Orlowski, he asked him, So, are you going to heaven? That may sound pretty direct, and indeed it is, but Orlowski said this about him. He said that Kidna's spiritual conversations, even that one, were never overbearing or forceful. He didn't bring up God too much, but rather offered advice. And John would always be there as a friend, and I think that he does that with a lot of guys on our team. When John came in, the entire locker room started to tilt toward his locker, toward John and Josh McCowan's. And the thing that led people to want to hang out with them was joy. He was laughing all the time. He and McCowan were playing games. There was just this joy factor that I don't think most people see in Christians. And I would walk into the locker room and everybody would be over by John. Even the loudest guys in the locker room were hanging out with Kitna. And I was like, you know why they're over there? Because they're attracted to joy. Joy that comes from Jesus. Here was a guy who was not a sour witness for Christ. He was a joyful witness for Christ. And he shared that joy with others. What happened last year was pretty amazing among the Detroit Lions football team. There were 18 baptisms that took place among players and some spouses. And when they had team prayer like the one pictured here, almost nobody turned away. It's a new season for them as God has been doing a work in their life. You know, I think about that for us. Are we a joyful witness for Christ? I think too few Christians are. And I think that's one of the best ways that we can attract others is by letting the joy of Jesus Christ shine through us. Do you believe that Jesus gives joy in abundance? A deep abiding joy that lasts? Jesus said the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that you might have life and have it to the full. When I think in my own life, you know what? I think there was a season in my life when I didn't believe that. And I thought the way that to find joy in life was to really to follow what the world had to offer when I was a teenager in those years. I mean, that's what movies and television seem to say, that if you really want to be happy, you have to buy this product or you have to reach this level or have this certain thing or that certain thing. And I thought that the way to be happy was to follow that message of the world. And then when I got into college, by the grace of God, I found Christ in a new and deeper way. And when I yielded my life to Him, I not only found Jesus Christ, but He brought joy into my heart and a sense of purpose and direction. And what I would say today is that Jesus makes everything in my life better. He makes my marriage, my family, my friendships, my work, my perspective on life and circumstances all better. Because Jesus gives joy, and He gives encouragement, and He gives hope. That's what this text is about. 
It reminds us that Jesus has the power to change lives. In fact, He is in the transformation business. He can turn water into wine. And He can turn sinners into saints. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Jesus Christ, Your Son, who is our Savior and who came into this world to give us forgiveness and hope and joy and eternal life. Father, help us to reflect that in our daily life as we go about our work, as we're involved in the community or the neighborhoods. May we too be that kind of joyful witness that points others to Your Son. I pray this in Your name. Amen.